Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, April 20th, and I'm the host of this consumer goods-focused episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by a very, very special guest, a face and a voice that you maybe haven't heard on Industry Focus for quite some time. At least, I haven't since I've been hosting the Consumer Goods Show. It is Motley Fool contributor Keith Spites. And Keith, part of the reason why you're on today is because we have a really fun and special episode. Today is April 20th, 420, and you know, cool kid lingo. And we're going to be talking about the cannabis industry. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. It's rare that my day job gets to intersect with my podcast work so nicely. Uh, as, as listeners may be aware, in addition to the work that I do here on the podcast, I also moonlight as the advisor for our cannabis focus service here at The Fool. Um, and what people may be even less aware of, actually maybe more aware of, since you mostly work on the free side, you contribute a lot to Fool.com articles, is that, Keith, you are a resident cannabis expert here at The Fool, and you've been following the industry since the beginning. I have. Uh, I don't know that I would say I'm the resident cannabis expert, but I yeah, I, but I but I but you're right. I, I have been writing about cannabis since this whole crazy thing started um, several years ago. With the uh, even before Canada legalized recreational cannabis, so it's it's been a fun ride, and uh, I've learned a lot, and and uh, it's 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 been quite intriguing watch watching what unfolds with this industry. That's really putting it lightly because it's been <laughs> a crazy roller coaster. I've been following the industry for only a fraction of the time that you have, Keith. But when I started kind of paying attention to it, it was during this crazy kind of boom and bust cycle we saw in Canada in 2018 on the rumors that Canada was going to legalize and then the subsequent sell-off once legalization actually happened. Uh, it's really been a different experience for investors. You'll hear a lot of people who say they've had such great success investing in the cannabis space, especially if they only started buying in the past year, because these cannabis businesses, especially being essential businesses during the pandemic, have actually had pretty good years. On the flip side, people who bought in, especially during that initial hype, especially into Canadian players, may have really lost their shirt in the space. So it's crazy following this industry, especially having conversations with people, because their experience and, and thoughts about investing in cannabis are so colored by when and how they got involved. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and a lot of it, Emily, was the hype was just crazy. Uh, before Canada's magic date for when uh, recreational marijuana was legalized. And and there were really some, um, I think, some expectations that weren't grounded in reality at the time. And, uh, you know, people were thinking that that market was going to explode and, and be a lot bigger than it ultimately has turned out to be. And um, as, a real, as a result, you're right. Um, many investors who got in right at the uh, hype, at the peak hype, ended up taking a bath. Uh, many of the Canadian stocks plummeted and uh, are still not even close to their their highs from a few years ago. And this was a question I was planning on 
posing to you later in the show, but it flows so nicely from this conversation. So before we get into maybe just some of the fundamentals about cannabis, I have to ask, what lessons do you think investors can learn from what we've seen happen in Canada as it applies to the cannabis industries? Um, Personally, I think always about the buy the rumor, sell the news phenomenon. And while there are differences in the US and Canadian markets, I can't help but feel like we might see a similar rise and then sell off if the US makes substantial movement towards legalization. But before we get into today's show, uh, what should investors be thinking about as far as lessons to pull forward? Well, I think you're right. There, there certainly is this aspect of buy the rumor, sell the news that occurs with any industry, but especially with the cannabis industry. And, and we saw that uh, in in a major way in 2018 with in the with the Canadian stocks, but I think there's some there's some clear lessons to learn. First of all, some of these companies are just growing at any cost. Um, I, I'll give you an example, and this is this is one of those uh, very low cap stocks that we will warn everyone about the risks with uh, MedMen. Um, MedMen is a U.S. Uh, based uh, cannabis retailer. And I think they bit off way more than they could chew. And the stock has performed dismally because they really, they were trying to grow faster than they were able to. Another company that did the exact same thing was one of the big Canadian players, Aurora Cannabis. Uh, Aurora went on a crazy buying spree and spent so much money that uh, they were just acquiring companies left and right. And and that didn't pay off over the long run. Uh, you know, basically it caught up with Aurora. And so both of these companies spent like crazy and ultimately had to raise a lot of additional capital through issuing new shares that caused dilution in the value of their existing shares. And both companies ended up having to slash costs, cut back staff and saw their stocks implode. So there is a definite lesson from looking at companies that are just trying to grow at any cost and, and not worry about the financial repercussions. And what's really frustrating is that even in, I guess, financial media, really cannabis media, because a lot of financial media uh, kind of follows that trend, is that these are still the businesses that receive a lot of press, especially the big Canadian players. Aurora Cannabis, for instance, is still one of the most widely held cannabis companies amongst retail investors, despite the fact that it's written off nearly $5 billion Canadian dollars in asset write-downs, goodwill write-downs from acquisition funded with shareholder value. That's more than twice where Aurora's market cap is right now. They haven't generated a single penny in terms of cash flow. I mean, these are businesses that have really had a strong history of destructive shareholder value that are still getting a lot of financial press and a lot of financial media. It's frustrating because the industry is so driven by retail investors and these retail investors do take financial media at its face value, which I think has really done investors wrong by by focusing attention at the most overhyped and overpressed businesses. But you know, I'll, I'll hold my rant there. It is to say <laughs> that investors should be really cautious when looking and investing in the cannabis space. I really love having conversations about it. The conversation we'll have today for industry focus, while a really broad one. I think it's going to be a fun conversation, but I also think it's important to acknowledge that the cannabis industry is still a challenge industry. You can hear a lot of press and media about financial tension around legalization. It doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy place to make money. And we'll talk more about that today. But before we do so, I have to ask, 
this is the consumer goods show. So I have to relate cannabis back to consumer goods somehow. And I actually think the two are really highly connected. But when you think about cannabis, Keith, do you view it as a consumer goods business or more as a commodity? Well, you know, cannabis is, is certainly a commodity. It's an agricultural crop. So so from that standpoint, yes, it's a commodity. But I do think it's really a consumer goods business. Uh, you know, Emily, I like to eat Frosted Flakes for breakfast. All right. I love it. Love Frosted Flakes. I've eaten Frosted oh, Flakes since I, was a, since I was a kid. They're, they're, as Tony the Tiger says, they're great. OK, <laughs> but but, you know, if you look at it, that cereal really it just consists of commodities. It has corn, it has sugar and, and other ingredients, but it's it's really a commodity. But but Frosted Flakes is differentiated. You know, uh, Kellogg, who, who, who uh, makes the cereal, you know, they, they have their packaging that stands out. They have shelf placement in grocery stores. Don't forget Tony the Tiger, their mascot. You know, so so they have things that set that brand apart. And I think cannabis is going to be like that um, and already is to some degree. And I think the winners in this industry are going to be the ones that differentiate what really is a commodity. But they they'll differentiate through their branding, through through their marketing through, uh, you know, things that set them apart from other players in the industry. And, and sure, they're going to be some low cost players, just as they are, that compete with Frosted Flakes. But but I think this is a, an industry that should be viewed in the, with the same lens as uh, other consumer goods businesses, because I think that's the future of cannabis. I love that analogy. We, we hear the beer comparison a lot. And I also understand that, you know, wheat, hops, these are commodities as well. Uh, but I, this is the first time I've heard Frosted Flakes. And I'm going to steal that from you, Keith, moving forward. I love that analogy. I, I do think it's also important to highlight the differences in the U.S. landscape as it comes to product differentiation versus that in Canada. And this is something that I think I've struggled with as an investor. I tend to, and this is personal, everybody has their own thoughts and feelings. I tend to gravitate towards U.S. companies because the way that regulations in Canada have started to shake out is it's been really restrictive in terms of marketing and branding and kind of that that shelf space excitement that you see when you look at a bag of Frosted Flakes. There's limitations put on products' ability to have color, to have sweets or sugar in some provinces, anything that can be kind of appealing, which I think has limited some level of differentiation in the products in Canada in a way that we don't see in the U.S., at least not yet, in part because you know, the U.S. hasn't really regulated the space as much as they could. Either way, it is a consideration I think all investors should be thinking of when investing in the cannabis space. I totally agree with you there, Emily. And I think that Canada has done a disservice to its cannabis industry by imposing so, so many of those regulations and, and limitations. And as a result, they continue to see the black market flourish. And so uh, that's been really problematic for them. And I think if they had it to do over again, they might would reconsider what they've done. But like you said, in the United States, it's been more of a piecemeal approach. And so you do have some uh, regions, some states that have more restrictive guidelines and you know uh, rules for their cannabis industry, but um, but in the U.S., it's been a much different story than in Canada. Definitely. And another question I get a lot has been, well, why would I ever want to get invested in cannabis? And I, I know I have kind of two reactions when I get this question. The first one is is that of course. You don't have to be invested in the cannabis industry. In fact, I'm sure there's a lot of people who pulled up this podcast and clicked away. They never even heard me say this, right? Because they just aren't interested. 
that's totally fine. I don't think anybody is out there you know, holding a gun to your head saying, if you're not invested in cannabis, you're never going to make any money. You're never going to have a growth portfolio. I think if you have personal or moral objections or you just aren't interested, you can do fine by yourself by never investing in cannabis. But that being said, the legal U.S. cannabis sales in 2020, so just over the past year, were nearly $18 billion U.S. dollars. That was up nearly 50% year over year. And they have the largest markets here in California, Colorado, Florida, which is only a medical market right now. These are really exciting opportunities. And to the extent that you are interested, I do think that cannabis is going to be a burgeoning industry. I totally agree. And I think, you know, you're right. There, there are plenty of investors who, you know, they, they would want to stay away from cannabis just as they might want to stay away from tobacco stocks or, you know, other type stocks. But, but a lot of investors like getting in on the ground floor of something. And we're still in the early innings of the U.S. cannabis market for sure. And so in a way, you can still get in on the ground floor with cannabis. And there's some stocks that have some tremendous growth potential as the uh, market expands. So, yeah, I mean, I think for investors who, who like that excitement, want to make money like any investor does, I think the cannabis market offers some real opportunities. And it is rapidly changing, though. And to the extent that anybody is interested in getting invested, I always say I think it's important to have a five to seven preferably even longer. I know that's asking for a lot, but preferably even longer time horizon for these investments because it will take so long, not only for us to see big movement in terms of federal legalization, which would really open up the landscape for cannabis companies in the US, but also just time for competitive landscape to shake out after legalization. These are businesses that will need to find their footing. They're completely new in a completely new and emerging industry that didn't exist a decade ago and will exist completely differently a decade from now. So give yourself time as an investor. When you look at how legalization is right now, on the U.S. scale, there's 18 states that have legalized cannabis for recreational adult use. Another 37 in total have legalized for medical use. So there is a legal market on the state level, but really it comes down to the federal government and when we'll see some sort of decriminalization or preferably legalization on the federal level. We actually got some exciting news. It's not quite decriminalization, not quite legalization, but it's coming on uh, on 420 this morning, or I guess yesterday evening, I should say. Keith, what can you tell us? What, what exciting news did the federal government have for us today? All right, Emily. So uh, today was announced that the U.S. House of Representatives has passed the SAFE Act, which basically what this act does is it will open up traditional banking services to cannabis companies in the U.S. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's just one step, obviously, because it has to now go to the Senate and uh, see if it'll pass there. And uh, sometimes there are differences in bills that have to be worked out between the two legislative chambers. And um, but but it's, it's exciting news for the industry. Uh, they've been hoping for this for quite a while. Um, the, the cannabis industry in the U.S. has really been handcuffed by its uh, limitation to banking services. And so this this is a big story that comes on 420 Day. Yes, it was a wonderful timing for the House to do that. I will say this has happened before. We saw the Safe Banking Act, I believe it was last year or late 2019. I can't quite remember the timeline, but the House has passed the Safe Banking Act prior. It essentially died in what was at the time a Republican-controlled Senate. Now that the Senate has uh, presumably flipped Democratic, I think there's an assumption that the Senate will attempt to 
pass the Safe Banking Act when it reaches its desk, but that's never a guarantee. And it's never a guarantee that even if that is something the Senate would want to pass, that they will make it a priority over other pending legislation. So all of that's unknown, but it is just a further testament that cogs are moving in the very slow machine that is the government. And hopefully those cogs continue to move in the direction of of opening up and loosening restrictions on the cannabis industry as they exist today. Safe banking is really critical for allowing access to, as you mentioned, banking services for state legal cannabis businesses. The next big step, in my opinion, if it wasn't decriminalization or legalization, is reforming tax laws around uh, how U.S.-based cannabis companies are taxed. They can't really deduct anything right now, so they pay outrageous amounts of money in U.S. tax, which doesn't contribute well to an increasingly unprofitable business. And when you think about the cannabis industry, Keith, we always get questions about, well, how do I get started investing? You're telling me that there's all these, all this hype, all this excitement. Don't trust what I read. I mean, am I just supposed to ignore the cannabis industry? How, how would you help somebody who is new and interested get started? Well, one, one alternative anyway is you don't have to go with uh, investing in a stock of a company that actually grows cannabis. There are uh, ancillary stocks that you could buy that have ties with the cannabis industry in some way. And uh, so going with an ancillary stock is actually a pretty good way to start out investing in cannabis for someone who just wants to dip their toes in the water. Um, these stocks uh, usually make well, always make most of their money from non-cannabis revenue sources, but then they also have some some connection in with the cannabis industry. So they have some revenue coming in that's generated from the cannabis market. Now, I'll note, Emily, that at the full, we kind of differentiate a little here. That we, we categorize ancillary stocks as those companies uh, that have other primary revenue sources and don't make a lot of money necessarily from cannabis. And then there are picks and shovels plays that serve the cannabis industry and uh, provide products and services specifically to the cannabis industry. And of course, that picks and shovels uh, phrase comes from the uh, gold mining days when uh, it was said that the, the folks making the most money weren't the gold miners themselves, but those who were selling picks and shovels to the miners. And so, so there's the ancillary and the picks and shovels. And um, I think new investors to cannabis could go with either route there. They could they could invest in companies that have a very indirect tie to cannabis, or they could invest in companies that uh, sell products to the cannabis industry as a good entree point into investing in cannabis stocks. You're being kind with that commentary about the ancillary versus picks and shovels. Um, I think I was the one who confused the two. I, I like to differentiate between the two. In, in my mind, ancillary companies are companies that if the cannabis industry goes to zero, they will still be fine. You can own shares of them and still think to yourself, like, this is a good business to own. I, I didn't lose a lot of capital as a result. Uh, so you can think about investing in a company that has investments in the cannabis industry as an example of that. If the investments go to zero, they still have these strong underlying businesses. Whereas picks and shovels, I think, especially as I've thought more about the industry, have gotten increasingly, like, very connected to the performance of the cannabis industry alone. Picks and shovels in my mind are businesses that if the cannabis industry were to disappear tomorrow, while their businesses would be more stable than a pure play, 
they would also probably disappear. So there's lots of ways that you can think about risk when setting up your exposure to the cannabis industry. For people who want exposure but don't want the downside risk, I think ancillary plays are a great place to go. Uh, for other ones who are looking for more upside but also more probably volatility, pure plays and picks and shovels are great. We will give you examples of each of these businesses at the end of today's show when we talk about some of our favorite ideas. So if this is really kind of amorphous as we're talking about it here, don't worry. We'll provide some examples later on that hopefully color that a little bit better. And Keith, in that same vein, when you're looking at a cannabis industry, whether it's ancillary or, or pure plays, what are you looking for when evaluating whether or not you want to buy that business or invest in that business? Yeah, Emily, I can't tell you how many times I've written about cannabis stocks over the last several years and emphasized that every factor you would look for in a stock in another industry still applies. You know, I think it's a mistake to think of cannabis stocks with the emphasis on cannabis instead of on stock. These are stocks of companies. And so you want to look at the same things with these companies that you would look at with any other company in any other industry. So you you know look at the financials, look at their cash flow, look at their profitability, or if they're not profitable, maybe look at their adjusted EBITDA and look at the trends. You know, are they making progress towards profitability? Uh, look at their debt levels. Uh, some of these companies have taken on enormous amounts of debt, and that that makes it more difficult for them to achieve profitability. Look at their management teams. You know, unfortunately, Emily, there've been. I, I'm going to phrase this as in as uh, politically correct of a way as I can, but there have been some <laughs> characters who were less than exemplary who've been attracted to the cannabis industry in some cases. So take a look at the management teams. Make sure you understand their backgrounds. Um, and then with any company, you want to look at their competitive advantages. Uh, for cannabis companies, sometimes uh, they have some ge geographic advantages because of the states that they operate in. Uh, look at their cost advantages. Some companies have lower cost structures, and so they're better able to compete. And I like looking at their partnerships. Sometimes the right connections open doors that um, aren't open to other companies. So look at all those kind of things that you would look at with any stock when you're looking at a cannabis stock. I love that. And I feel like whenever I talk about cannabis businesses, I say all those things you just said, but I never put it in the context of this is the same thing that you look for when you buy any business. I, I love that context. The couple things I would add, and frequent listeners of Industry Focus have heard me say these words many times in the context of non-cannabis businesses, but to your point, they also apply here. There are two kind of yellow flags that I, I look for in cannabis industries. The first one is, oh, everybody's going to know it. I should just not say it, but it's, it's internal controls. And cannabis industries because of their small size, or cannabis companies, excuse me, because of their small size, don't have to have internal control reporting for the most part. Some of them do. Uh, so you can't always get a lot of insight here. But if you see some red flags there in terms of internal controls, that's a concern for me. We've seen cannabis companies have to restate prior financials, which is never fun and usually never a good thing. They're never restating and they're like, oh man, we actually did 50% more revenue. It, it never happens. Uh, so it's just something to be aware of. And the second thing I'd say is actually look for related party transactions. This goes back to what you're saying, Keith, about evaluating your management team. The related party transactions are transactions that the company takes with executives or professionals that work within the company itself. And a lot of times, these related party transactions can be set up in a way where they reward 
management, even if performance of the business is poor. And I'll talk more about that with one of uh, the ideas that I'm going to bring together at the end of the show. It's a big risk. And again, it's a yellow risk. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to invest. But I do think that everybody should be aware of how management's incentivized because with a lot of these small companies and cannabis companies in general, they can set up incentive structures that reward them when you're losing money, which is not fun. Do you think we've teased everyone enough, Keith? Should we get to our favorite stocks? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. (laughs) I'll kick it to you first. Um, I guess let's think about this in my totally arbitrary framework of ancillary picks and shovels and pure play, starting with the ancillary first. Do you have a favorite ancillary idea? Or again, it doesn't have to be your favorite, but one you want to talk about today. There are actually two that I really like and that I own. Uh, All right. Uh, I love PayPal and Square. And I realize that, you know, many people won't connect those with the cannabis industry. But hey, here's the thing. Retail is critical to the cannabis industry. And I think these two companies, PayPal and Square, are becoming increasingly more critical to retail. And so, um, you know, they they do have some ties, uh, particularly uh, Square, you know, has some ties for the cannabis to the cannabis industry. And of course, like you said earlier, Emily, ancillary stocks are the kind that would kinds of stocks that'll be fine, even if the cannabis industry disappeared. And so I would like PayPal and Square, even if they had zero ties to cannabis whatsoever. All right. So so those are two of my favorites. I I also like Constellation Brands. Um, Constellation has a closer connection to cannabis through its stake in Canopy Growth, which is one of the leading uh, Canadian cannabis producers. Of course, Constellation makes most of its money from its premium beer brands and its uh, uh, wines and spirits. And uh, but Hey, you know, and seltzers increasingly. And seltzers, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, that's really a growth opportunity for them there. But you know, I think um, Canopy gives Constellation Brands a, a great way to potentially profit from the cannabis boom, uh, particularly if um, the uh, the doors are open for Canopy to really expand into the U.S. market. So those are three that really jump out to me. I love that. And in the context of PayPal and Square, uh, I'm a shareholder in both those companies as well. And Square actually has solutions for CBD companies here in the US. So if if you're not already convinced, they have an entire offering just serving the CBD industry. And then PayPal has actually invested a lot of money, I shouldn't say invest, spent a lot of money lobbying (laughs) the federal government to pass some sort of banking reform. So they're both, both management teams, I think, are conscious of the opportunity there. I think my ancillary idea is becoming less of an ancillary idea at as every day passes. I'd almost say that this is probably more picks and shovels as I think about it more, but it's actually Scott's miracle grow. Uh, Scott's miracle grow, everybody's familiar with as the fertilizer provider, right? The miracle grow solutions. We spray it on our plants. If you're watching this live, you can see a very dead plant behind me that has definitely not gotten its fair dosage of, of miracle grow. But Scott's miracle grow is actually increasingly focused on a business that it acquired that works in the hydroponic supply space. It's called Hawthorne. And it's the number one supplier of hydroponic hydroponics equipments to professional cannabis growers in the U.S. They have a dominating market share and virtually all of their growth is coming from Hawthorne at Scott's miracle Grow. It's crazy because if you look back only a few years ago, Scott's miracle Grow, the only way it was delivering shareholder value was by buying back shares and issuing dividends. It's fine, but it was a fertilizer provider and that's how they were incentivizing shareholders. 
And now it's turned into this crazy growth story with Hawthorne projected to grow at more than two times the rate of Scott Miracle Grow's core business, which is already growing quickly as everybody started gardening during the pandemic. So I, I love this business. I didn't think I'd love this business, but I love this business. Actually, Emily, I agree with you there. And um, if we kind of segue to picks and shovels, uh, Scott's Miracle Grow was one of the top picks and shovels plays that I really like right now. Oh, and for, yeah. See, it for is all more of the reasons shovels. you just mentioned, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did have another pick, though, uh, and it's one that I do own. Um, innovative Industrial Properties. This is a picks and shovels play. Um, innovative Industrial Properties is a real estate investment trust that focuses on the medical cannabis industry. And this company has been highly profitable. It's growing fast. It even pays a really great dividend to boot. And so I, I really like IIP's prospects. Now, uh, we talked about the, the Safe Banking Act passing the House of Representatives today. That could present some issues for um, innovative industrial properties because it um, basically they provide real estate capital. And so if uh, cannabis companies have more access to traditional banking services, they, they could have more outlets to go get the cash that they need. But I still think uh, that uh, innovative industrial properties prospects should still be really good over the long run. And I still like that stock quite a bit. I was actually going to say innovative industrial properties as well. And instead of switching it up, I'm going to double down because this is a really interesting business. And I want to touch on the point that you just mentioned. The question we always get, which is, okay, if and when the Safe Banking Act changes, what happens to innovative industrial properties? I love the fact that management team has not only been really transparent with what they expect to happen, but their expectations have not changed since day one when they were asked about this question, which says to me that they're thinking really strong about, okay, what the future looks like for this business. And one of the things that they have constantly said is, yeah, we expect our cap rate to compress. We're not going to be able to get the same fees that we're getting right now when competition in the market heats up. But in order to prepare for that happening, they're increasing the length of their average term from 15 years to 20 years. So locking down those lucrative customers for longer periods of time. And if and when safe banking passes, innovative industrial properties can actually do something that we haven't seen them able to do yet, which is lever up their balance sheet. And typically, that's not a good thing when you see a business taking on a lot of debt. But in the case of REITs, it's actually great because they have a weird tax status that essentially allows them to pay out uh, virtually, I think it's 90% of of operating income, pre-tax operating income to shareholders. So levering up is actually really beneficial in the context of the tax structure for REITs. And they haven't been able to do that because of their lack of access to banking. So I love the fact that they can lever up and provide a little bit more shareholder value that way as well, just from that passage alone. And lastly, and perhaps we've maybe saved the best for last, maybe saved the worst for last, I guess, depending <laughs> on how you think about it. What what are, what are some of your or one of your favorite pure play ideas? You know, one pure play that I really like right now is uh, Air Wellness. Um, and uh, they used to be called, I guess, Air or AYR Strategies, but they changed their name. I think this stock is arguably the best bargain among all cannabis stocks, uh, arguably. Um, this company is growing leaps and bounds through acquisitions. It's expanded into several new states, Arizona, Florida, Ohio, or just a few. Uh, it's waiting the close of a deal that'll get it into New Jersey, which I think presents a great opportunity for the company. Air Wellness is projecting 
2022 revenue of $725 million. They're looking for adjusted EBITDA of around $325 million. I think they're going to meet those goals. By the way, they they projected 2022 uh, numbers instead of 2021 because they're undergoing so much change in 2021 with, with so many acquisitions um, in the works. And so this company has a market cap of around $1 billion or so. I think it looks like a really good pick for investors who, who, like you said earlier, Emily, are willing to hang in there for five to seven years or so, I think this could be a real winner. Oh, I love that. And when you first said the company name, I, I thought I didn't recognize it because I've been calling it AYR Wellness. But now that you mention it, it does not have periods in between each of those letters. So Air Wellness may just be as, as accurate as AYR. I'm not sure. You may know it as either, but I also love that business. Actually, I'm going to be honest here, Emily. I had called it AYR because of their previous name had caps, A-Y-R, they switched to lowercase. And I was curious, are, are, they, are, they, have they, are they still A-Y-R? Is it air? And I, and I saw a video that some of their staff had made and they were pronouncing it air. So I realized, okay, that's how, you, that's how they pronounce it. Well, I'd say that you saved me some embarrassment, but I, I've managed to really put my foot in my mouth as a cannabis analyst now on this podcast by admitting that I hadn't even heard the name spoken yet <laughs> before investing in it. But either way, I agree with you about A-Y-R. Air, oh, that's going to take some getting used to, yeah. about air wellness. Uh, it's, I think, an underrated player, although admittedly one that I think has probably a bit more execution risk, as do all pure play cannabis companies. It all comes down to execution. And mine is one that I think is going to surprise a lot of people who have listened to me talk about cannabis companies in the past, because it's one that I've been a bit of a bear on. And that's actually True Leaf Cannabis. Uh, True Leaf Cannabis is the largest player, one of the first movers in the Florida medical market. And I have been a huge skeptic of this business in part for a couple of still what I perceive to be very good reasons. The first one is, is can they execute on their strategy and financial performance when they attempt to move outside of Florida? Do I trust management, in particular, uh, management's compensation structure? Each of those things, I think, are still big question marks. And going back to related party transactions, I think TrueLeave is one of the worst offenders when it comes to looking at management compensation. Their CEO, Kim Rivers, and numerous of their executives have set up sort of kind of like their debt financers to the business. So they're getting paid some pretty lofty interest payments, regardless of whether or not TrueLeave does well. But in River's defense, she's also a majority shareholder of the business. So she's invested alongside you or I. And more importantly, I think TrueLeave has kind of proven out just how well they understand their core customer. Some of the things I like about this business is that they're one of the only players, the only player that I follow at least, that breaks out customer retention rate, which has consistently been above 70% in the Florida market. Uh, that's really strong for a consumer packaged goods business. They still only have about 2% of the Florida market penetrated, despite being a market share leader at over 50% in terms of market share, especially for dried flowers. So there's still lots of room to grow. Their average basket size in the last quarter was around $115 a visit, with their customers visiting on average nearly three times a month. So customers are spending a ton of money. And for context, Planet 13, which is another cannabis business, which is known for its really high basket size, had a basket size last quarter of just over $120. So TrueLeave is 
pulling in customers left and right. They're retaining those customers pretty well and getting those customers to spend more and more money. I actually think that this business will have trouble expanding outside of Florida. I think they can, but I think they may face some troubles, especially with brand recognition outside of their home state. But in my opinion, even if they fail, I think they have such a hold on the Florida market that it may not matter over the long term. Well, with that, I think we have uh, you know done our investors and listeners hopefully proud by covering cannabis today on 420 in a way that is is foolish, and we didn't manage to talk too much about Canadian players, so that already puts us a step ahead of of Bazinga and the other cannabis outlets. <laughs> I think you're right on that. At least in my opinion. <laughs> well, Keith, thank you so much for joining with me. I really appreciate you being willing to come on today and give your thoughts. You're clearly an expert, and I, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Emily. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you just want to reach out, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocusatfool.com or tweet at us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Keith Spites, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! 